I uh, was called to preach, called to ministry, when I was a 16-year-old boy at uh, Falls Creek. Falls Creek is a, a, a massive church camp in Oklahoma, and I, I grew up in Oklahoma. And if you're a Baptist kid in Oklahoma and you're called to ministry, the expectation is that you're going to go to Oklahoma Baptist University. So that's what I did. I went to Oklahoma Baptist University uh, to begin my education in preparation for ministry. And while I was there, I had the good fortune to fall under the influence of a guy named Dr. Tom Wilkes. Uh, Dr. Wilkes is now uh, with the Lord, uh, but he had a profound impact on me. In fact, I, I didn't actually realize how big an impact he had on me until I, the day, literally, the day I was graduating uh, from uh, seminary with my doctorate because it occurred to me that without knowing it, I had followed his educational path. I'd gone to New Orleans Seminary to get a master's, and I'd gone to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, to get my doctorate. And so uh, he's had a tremendous influence on me. And, and the primary way that he influenced me is he developed in me a deep love for the Old Testament. I uh, fell in love with the Old Testament. He brought it alive uh, when I was sitting in Old Testament survey class. And uh, he, he asked me my sophomore year to be a tutor uh, in Old Testament, Old Testament survey, which, just to be real honest, I, I took that job because it seemed to me that I would become infinitely more attractive to the ladies of OBU if I had the answers to the test. And so... <laughs> Uh, I, I took that and, uh, and had a wonderful time in the Old Testament. And then once I got uh, doing master's level work, if it was Old Testament, I took it. If it was Hebrew, I took it. And then I, I, my doctorate actually wound up having an emphasis in Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. So when we're uh, building a series of messages um, called Bible 101, which is a focusing on the Bible passages that every Jesus follower should know, you should not be surprised that there are going to be many messages from the Old Testament. We're on message five from the Old Testament. I think, if I can remember correctly, there are two more. So a total of seven messages uh, from the Old Testament. And today, we come to one of those passages in the Old Testament that you might overlook, but it is the most quoted chapter by New Testament authors of any Old Testament passage. It's Psalm 110. So if you would please open your Bibles to Psalm 110. Now, this psalm is what is known as a royal psalm. Here's what that means. It is a psalm that was used by the people of Israel in their worship to uh, celebrate the eternal rule of the line of David. David had been given a promise that he would never lack an heir on the throne of Israel. And so people who were downtrodden and who were picked upon, uh, kind of a geopolitical football in the world in which they lived, took great comfort in any psalm that would celebrate the eternal rule of David. It meant that one day they would not be the world's uh, whipping post. So they looked at it with great importance. But but we want to know, why did the New Testament authors find it to be so important that they quoted it more than any other Old Testament passage? Directly quoted 18 times in the New Testament, and there are countless allusions to it where the imagery being used obviously comes from Psalm 110. And because we're New Testament Christians, we want to run to the why right now, right? But here's the deal. You can't do that until you understand it from the Jewish perspective. 
So that's what we're going to do this morning. You're going to have a Gentile Irishman from Oklahoma explain to you the Jewish perspective on Psalm 110. There's nothing wrong with that at all, is there? Nothing wrong with that at all, but we're going to do that together. Would you stand, please, as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning? Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And you may be seated. And you are free to ask yourself, why on earth would that be so important to New Testament Christians? And yet... It was. So let's go through it and look at it. First of all, in verse 1, we have something that sounds odd to our ears. The first part of verse 1, the psalmist writes, The Lord says to my Lord. Now, why is, why is that odd language, the Lord says to my Lord, being used? Well, you can look and you can see, obviously, that there's a difference in how your text is printed. You will see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord, says to my capital L, lowercase o, R, D, Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. Why is it different? Well, because in the language in which Psalm 110 was written, there are two different words being used here. And what the English authors are trying to do is to bring into English a practice of the Jews called the Karei Ketib. Karei Ketib. Karei, here's a Hebrew lesson for you. Karei essentially means what is spoken, and Ketib means what is written. What is spoken, what is written. Now, what was written in the text, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is the divine name of God, the covenant name of God. We, we see it in English in, in the early chapters of Exodus as I am, but we understand it thanks to Martin Luther 500 years ago as Jehovah. It is the covenant name of God. And the Jews believed that to speak that name was to run the risk of blaspheming it in some way. And so they had to figure out a way in the public reading of Scripture to read scripture, but not say that, that name, that covenant name of God. And so, what was written was Yahweh or Jehovah, but what they would say instead was Adonai. Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord. And so, what the English authors do, anytime you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is to translate it Adonai, which was how the Jews would speak it, but it's indicating to us it's the covenant name of God. So essentially what this says is this, Jehovah God, the I Am, the eternal God, says to my Lord, which is a way, an honorific way of referencing the king. Okay, so Jehovah God says to my king, 
What? Look at the rest of verse 1. Set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the right hand of the king was symbolic of the king's power. I'm sorry, all the left-handed people in this room, you're being given a slight here, okay? To set at the right hand of the king was to, was to, to set at the, the place that represented the king's power. So what the king of Israel is being invited by Jehovah God to do is to sit at his right hand and this God would exercise his power through that Jewish king. So it's real simple. Jehovah God says to my king, sit at my right hand and I will give my power to you to conquer all of the enemies of Israel. And so you begin to see in verses 2 and 3 how that might happen. And then there seems to be an almost break in continuity. In verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you're really following along as a Bible student, you'll understand that the imagery shifted from king to priest. But if you've been at Blue Valley for a long period of time, you read Melchizedek and say in your head, Melchizedek, right? How many people here have been at Blue Valley long enough to remember Melchizedek? The rest of you are looking at us like we're nuts. Let me tell you what happened. Nine years ago, a silly mallard duck decided to have a nest and lay eggs right outside my office window. And so on a whim, I saw it on a Sunday night before I was getting ready to go home. On a whim, I called the bearded one in the, in the tech area, Ted Schmidt, who wound up being a media star during that period of Blue Valley's life. I, I called, there's Melchizedek. I hadn't seen that duck in nine years. It met an unfortunate end, but I diverge. Um, but anyway... Uh, I called Ted. I said, why don't you just set up one of those cameras and we can just watch it from our, our I don't know, it was a Facebook page, I think. And he said, sure. And he got, a, got a, like a blue bunny ice cream deal and put a lame old camera in it. And Anyway, and we thought that would be that. Uh, eventually, CNN covered it. I'm not kidding. CNN covered it. Thousands of people were watching our duck. And... Uh, <laughs> And then one morning, I, I, I woke up, and the duck wasn't on the nest, and there was a long stream of things on our Facebook page saying, where did the duck go, Pastor Derek? And uh, it just went home to be with the Lord, <laughs> from what we understand. Anyway, so you see Melchizedek, if you're an old-time Blue Valley person. But you're right, if you're a student of the Bible, to see that imagery is shifted from a priest to a king. Now, several... Uh, weeks ago, we were in Genesis chapter 15, and I referenced a man named Melchizedek, who was referenced in Genesis 14 as being the, the king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. That's the language that is ascribed to him, king of Salem, Jerusalem, and priest of the Most High God. And, and in that passage of Scripture in Genesis 14, Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and therefore representing in his body the entirety of Jewish history and the Jewish religion, bows to show honor to the king of Salem. And the Jewish people began to do a couple of things in an almost mythic kind of way with Melchizedek. They would say because Abraham, representing the entirety of the Jewish religion and people, bowed low to him, this king is preeminent 
And then because he just shows up in a few verses in Genesis 14 and then disappears without any kind of his father was and his children were, no genealogical record, so almost timeless in a sense, they begin to ascribe to him an eternal nature. Now, they didn't really truly believe that he lived for eternity. He just represented eternity because there was no beginning and end to his, uh, his being here. He just shows up on the pages of Scripture. So they said, this king is preeminent and he is eternal. So the reason then that this is showing up here is because the author of Psalm 110 is communicating that the, the, the line of David is the preeminent line, the, the, the king of all kings come from the line of David, and this, this reign of David will be eternal. So that's why that shows up. And then the rest of the verses, frankly, give us trouble as modern Christians. They are filled with ideas of wrath. Um, there's a verse, verse 6, where it talks about filling the nation with corpses. It's really difficult to find that in artwork at Mardell's. Nobody <laughs> likes to think about those kinds of things. But for the Jewish people, it would have just been a reference to the idea that eventually... The, the Davidic line will subdue the earth in the name of God, and God will rule forever and ever. That's why Psalm 110 was so important to the Jewish people. But it began to take on different, more expanded significance for the New Testament authors. And they found in Psalm 110 an anchor point for three truths about Jesus. I want to share them quickly with you. The first truth that they found an anchor point in Psalm 110 to affirm about Jesus is that they believed it showed that Jesus is a perfect king. Now, Jesus is the one who actually started all of that. There are two times recorded for us in the New Testament where Jesus provokes his critics by asking them to explain Psalm 110. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, to whom is David speaking? Now, keep in mind, this is attributed to David. Psalm 110, it says right at the beginning, a psalm of David. So, in the mouth of David, you have the words, the eternal God says to my king, David, my king. So, in other words, it's pointing to a king that is preeminent over David. The Jewish people had begun to see that Psalm 110 promised more than just the Davidic line. It was actually pointing to one special king through whom all the promises to David would be fulfilled. And Jesus grabbed that verse, verse 1, which everybody understood was talking about the one true king who would come, and said, by way of provocation, leaving no doubt about it, I'm the one that Psalm 110, verse 1 is talking about. And the New Testament authors then ran with that idea. You see, several of them allude to Psalm 110.1 as a reference to Jesus as a perfect king. But the one who spends the most time developing this idea is the author, the unnamed anonymous author of the book of Hebrews. We're not going to be in Psalm 110 anymore. We're going to look at Basically, commentary on Psalm 110 from the book of Hebrews. So go to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Find 
chapter 1. In the first several verses of Hebrews chapter 1, the author talks about how, how Jesus is the final and full fulfillment of all that God has been saying to the world. And he begins his, his demonstration of how Jesus is the final word of God and preeminent over all things by showing that he is superior to angels by actually pointing to him as the true and perfect king. And so in verse, uh, in verse 8, he begins to say this of the son of Jesus. He says, quoting from the Old Testament, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Your scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. A reference there explaining how he is the true and perfect king. And then to add on to that idea, quotes again from the Old Testament. Verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. So quoting the Old Testament, again, showing how, how God and, and his reign is eternal. And then verse 13, and to which of the angels has he ever said, here's our verse, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The author of Hebrews is saying that's Jesus that is being talked about here. It is Jesus who is the one true and perfect king to whom David was even looking. And it is through Jesus that God's power will be demonstrated and the whole earth will be brought ultimately under the rule of God through this king. So the New Testament authors use Psalm 110 a lot to communicate that Jesus is a perfect king. But then they also used Psalm 110 to demonstrate that Jesus is a perfect priest. Jesus is a perfect priest. I mentioned how earlier Melchizedek was uh, someone who took up almost mythic proportions in Jewish thought, representing ultimately an eternal kind of priest, an eternal kind of king. And this is, uh, this is something that the author of Hebrew leverages. He's writing to a Jewish audience, an audience of people who had converted to Christianity from Judaism. And so he leverages this common understanding of Melchizedek's eternal nature to point out that Jesus is the perfect priest. Twice in the early verses of Psalm 110, or excuse me, in the early verses of, of Hebrews 7, Psalm 110.4 is quoted. But then when you get to verse 23, he begins to make a point. So Hebrews 7, verse 23, the author of Hebrews makes this first point. The former priest, the priest of the Jewish religion, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. There was always an expiration date on a, on a Levitical priest. They're going to die. And so other priests had to come in behind them. But he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus rose from the grave and lives eternally. Consequently, the author of Hebrews says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. We always have in Jesus, because he lives forever, a high priest who, because of his eternal nature, continues to intercede and act on our behalf before the Father. That's the first point he makes. But then he makes this point in verse 26 using that same verse. For it was indeed fitting 
that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. It's fitting that we should have someone like Jesus who was sinless and had no sin and, and never failed the law of God at all and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. He doesn't have to continue the priestly work of sacrifices, first for his own sin because he didn't have any, and then for those of people. Why? Why does he not have to continually offer sacrifices for people for atonement for their sin? Since he did this, the author of Hebrews says, once for all, when he offered himself up. So, so Jesus is a perfect priest because he lives forever and because his sacrifice was the final perfect sacrifice that satisfied God for our sin. So Jesus, the New Testament writers say, Jesus is a perfect priest. And then finally this, Jesus is a perfect savior. He's a perfect king. He's a perfect priest final thing that they would leverage here from Psalm 110, the New Testament writers, is the idea that Jesus is a perfect Savior. Find, find Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. Now, I'll give you this. The author of Hebrews doesn't directly quote Psalm 110 in the passage that I'm about to read, but you will clearly see it was on his mind. So, I want you to look at verse 11 of Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. This is the wonderful chapter where he says the, bull, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin because they were not the same in kind. They had to be done on a repeated basis. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There's the imagery, right? I mean, obviously it's on his mind. Set down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool, a footstool for his feet. There's the imagery again, right? The imagery's there. It's obviously on his mind. What is he saying? He's saying, ultimately, if you follow his train of thought, that what enabled Jesus to sit down at the right hand of the Father was his death once and for all for sin and his resurrection. Because Jesus had brought the entire world ultimately under the rule of God through his death and his resurrection, he was able to take his rightful place at the right hand of God. And so here's that moment where in our minds, and we won't ever say this out loud because we're in church and our halos are on too tight, but here's that moment where we say, well, neat, but so what? I mean, I get that people that are really into doctrine and theology can get kind of wrapped around the axle and have a few hallelujah moments and connecting all of these dots, but I'm going to go to lunch. I don't know what difference this makes for me after I hit the door. I understand that that's the case. Now, there will be some people that say, well, Derek, let them figure it out for themselves. They just need to be as, as deep in their walk with Jesus as I am. And it ought to be just enough to see how God's massive and wonderful plan culminated in Jesus Christ. And if they can't get that, that's not my problem. Well, that might not be your problem. 
But that is a challenge that I face because I understand that ultimately the application of any sermon ought to just be worship. I mean, we ought to proclaim the truths of God and then we ought to say to God be the glory. I get that. But sometimes before people can get there, they have to see that this has boots on the ground, real world significance. God doesn't just split the doctrinal and the lived from one another. They go hand in hand. So, so let, me, let me tell you why this matters in the conduct of your life, if you'll give me just a few minutes. You may not realize it, but every single person here needs a king. And every single person here needs a priest. And every single person here needs a savior. You say, I don't believe it. First, I'm an American. I don't need any king. Second, I'm Protestant. I don't need any priest. But I'm Baptist, so I'll take the Savior portion. But you need all of those. And I'd like to illustrate it through a difficult time in the life of my family. The most difficult time that we have ever faced, the most trying season in the almost 30 years that Julie and I have been married occurred during a two-year period of time between uh, June of 2002 and the summer of 2004. Um, in June, late June um, of 2002, Julie's father, who was at the time younger than I am right now, um, had a brain bleed, and in the process of his recovery, had an embolism and passed away on July the 4th, 2002. Four months later, his mother, Julie's grandmother, passed away. Seven months after that, my grandma, my grandma McGinnis, passed away. And nestled in the midst of all of that, Julie's brother Jeremy, her only sibling, was deployed to Iraq during the teeth of the worst part of the war in Iraq. And, and I, am not, I, I, tell, I am not wired to be overly dramatic. In fact, my family questions at sometimes whether I have a pulse. But I, I flinched every time the phone rang during that two-year period of time because that phone had rung with bad news three different occasions. And every time it rang, I thought, is that going to be Julie's mom giving us bad news about Jeremy? Every time there was a news story on the evening news about troops being attacked with an IED in Iraq, you'd start running in your head, all right, that happened 18 hours ago. Would we know yet? That's, that's how we lived. And finally we had, it was almost like a Hallmark card, uh, Julie's brother got home and uh, we saw him uh, for the first time at the back door of the church uh, on a Sunday morning uh, where he stopped by our house and we took him to Colorado to be with his family. And uh, it, was, uh, it ended well. But how did we get through it? 
Well, I had a king in Jesus. And because Jesus was the perfect king, I knew that there was nothing that was happening in my frightening world that was beyond his rule. He was not flat-footed at anything that surprised me on the phone. And he was not going to wonder what he was going to do if the phone call did ring with bad news about Jeremy. I needed, our family needed a king. And we found one in Jesus. We got through that period of time because Jesus was a perfect priest. If you've ever been in difficult times, a trying season, you will understand that in the midst of that, sometimes you don't even know how to pray. But it was okay, because in those times when we didn't know how to pray, we had a priest who always lived to make intercession for us and would pray for us when we didn't know how to pray for ourselves. And we got through that period of time because in Jesus we had a perfect Savior. A Savior who wasn't just redeeming my life and the life of my family and my children and my extended family but who was redeeming the world from the curse of sin. And someday, there'd be no more death, meaning there'd never be any more surprising phone calls. And there'd be no more war, which meant that you wouldn't be watching the news and wondering, has a family member been affected? Because Jesus was a perfect king, a perfect priest, and a perfect Savior for us. We got through that period of time. And I'm telling you, if you have not had one of those times, one is coming. And when you get there, you're going to figure out very quickly the limits of your capacities. And I know that everything has always been able to be manipulated by the force of your personality and the fact that you just have maybe money or leadership strengths or whatever to make everything happen just like what you want it to. But there will come a time where God will grace you with a mess that you can't fix. And the reason it's grace is because in that moment, he wants you to see that Jesus is a perfect king that you need, a perfect priest that you can't go a day without, And a perfect Savior that will one day make all things new in His image. You need that. I need that. We all need that. And my prayer is that you will find that Jesus today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. 